you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Job 42. Many times people turn to the book of Job because they are, they are suffering. And they want answers as to why they are suffering. And the main human character of the book certainly suffers. But the book of Job is not fundamentally about suffering. Job suffers because he is a believer. And Job suffers as a believer. And because he is a suffering believer, the central character and subject of the book of Job is not about Job, who suffers, but about the God with whom he has to deal. The book of Job is about God. Every book in the Bible is about God. That should not surprise us, but it is easy to forget. We have a tendency to fix our eyes upon human events and human characters, and certainly they are there. Humanly speaking, Job is the central character of the book, but the book is not about Job. The book is about God. We think the book of Genesis to be about creation and the fall and the call of Abram and then of Abraham and his descendants of Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and the land and the famine and the plagues. But it's about God. It's about the God who creates. It's about the God who in the fall provides a way of relief, a way of redemption. All of the Bible is about God. book of Exodus is not primarily about Moses freeing the children of Israel from Egypt and them going into the promised land. It is about the God who frees them, the God who rescues them. We must always find in any book of the Bible God because God is what the Bible is about. We don't find the answers to our questions in the book of Job. We don't find out why the righteous suffer. We don't find out why many times the wicked seem to escape. The book of Job is not about Job primarily but about God, about God's character, God's justice, God's sovereignty, His goodness. Above all, it is about the God who is the creator, the God who creates everything, who made everything, who made even the wildest corners of the created order. He is the God who made and entirely controls the Leviathan, Satan, the enemy of God and his people, the beast and the monster who seeks to destroy Job. Even this hideous monster, we discover, is God's monster. God created him, and God controls him. And therefore, Job is about true worship, about bowing down in reality and in the darkness to the one who is God. And leaving with him even our most agonizing, unanswered questions. To lay them at his feet, realizing that we are creatures and he is the creator. Because Job is about God and the worship of God, it is also about humility. The humility to admit 
that there is so much about this world that we do not understand and that we will never understand because we are not God. How often, how often I've seen well-meaning, well-intentioned people come up against questions that they cannot answer about the Bible and about God and conclude that the Bible is wrong. And many of them conclude that God is wrong, that God is not moral. By what standard would we as human beings presume to judge the great God of heaven? What is your standard for saying that God is not fair, that God is not just? Where do you go to find that standard? Is it not far better to bow in humble worship and say, I do not know why God is doing what he is doing, but I know that God is the creator. I know that he is good. And if I understand it or not, I will worship him. Isn't that really what, when it boils down to it, faith is about? About believing what the Bible says about God when we cannot see it? Uh, But of course, Job is also about Job. He is the central human character of the book. He's introduced at the start. He's blessed at the end. Job is addressed personally by the Lord, whereas the other human characters of the book are either ignored or rebuked. So Job points us to the mystery at the heart of the universe. A blameless believer who walks in fellowship with the Creator may suffer terrible and undeserved pain may go through deep darkness and at the end be vindicated. There is such a thing in the universe as a suffering that is not a punishment for the sin of the sufferer. And so therefore Job is profoundly and passionately about Jesus Christ, whom Job foreshadows in both his blamelessness and his perseverance through undeserved suffering. As the, as the blameless believer par excellence, Jesus fulfills Job. As a priestly figure who offers sacrifices for his children at the start of the book and his friends at the end of the book, Job foreshadows Jesus as the great high priest. The monstrous uh, ferocity, cruelty, viciousness of the Leviathan reaches its depths in the life and death of Jesus Christ, who in his passion at the cross endures deeper depths and a more solemn and awesome darkness than even Job can begin to comprehend. The drama, the pain, and the perplexity of Job reach their climax at the cross of Jesus Christ. In that darkness, in that God-forsakenness of those lonely hours of terrible agony, the sufferings of Job are transcended and fulfilled. As the blameless believer, Jesus Christ is despised by men. He is falsely accused. He is nailed to a cross. He is laid in a borrowed grave. But at the end, He is vindicated by God. He is raised from the dead by the power of a sinless life. 
Here's what I want you to see from Job today. At the end comes the end. At the end comes the end. Now I'm rarely, if ever, profound, but I tell you that is profundity. But you have to remember that. Is healing in the atonement? Yes, but it doesn't come till the end. Is there unmeasurable prosperity if you are a Christian? Yes, but it doesn't come till the end. Is there freedom from suffering, from mourning, from pain, from tears? Yes, but it doesn't come till the end. At the end comes the end. That's the picture of Job. Keep that in mind. We're going to talk about it a little more. I may shout, I may cry, I don't know. This just got me kind of fired up this morning here. I want to tell you that. I want you to notice first Job's repentance in verses 1 through 6. Job's response to God is in three parts. He speaks of something he now knows, of things he did not know, and supremely of one thing he has now seen. First, he now knows that God can do all things and that no purpose of his can be thwarted. That's a very strong statement. At one level, Job has never doubted that. He has repeatedly referred to God as the Almighty. He's echoed the confidence of the comforters that God really is omnipotent, that he has all power. But it seems now at the end of the suffering, he knows this in a much deeper and a much fuller way. Uh, secondly, in verse 3, he speaks of something he did not know. He echoes God's rebuke to him of the first speech. Remember God started out by saying to Job, Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job repeats the words of God and admits clearly and explicitly that he has done exactly what the Lord accused him of. He didn't have the knowledge to question God. He didn't have the knowledge to accuse God of being unfair. He says he has spoken of what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. The word wonderful speaks of matters that only God can do, referring to his power, and that only God can understand, referring to his wisdom. These are, there are things, David said in Psalm 131, too great and too marvelous for me. Wow, again, a lesson in humility. All of us need to admit there are things that are too great and too marvelous for us. At the end of the first speech, Job said, you remember, that he was of small account, chapter 40, verse 4. But his statement here is much stronger. He admits clearly that he said things he ought not to have said. He has made accusations he ought not to have made. That he has spoken as if he understood everything that God does. And he admits and says plainly now, no, no. I don't even begin to understand everything that God does. Now he surrenders completely to God. Finally, in verses 4 through 6, Job echoes God's introductory challenge to both speeches. God had said, I will question you, you make it known to me. And he asked Job, you remember those 77 questions in there? 
Can you do this? Can you do this? Do you know this? Do you know this? So Job echoes God's words. Here and I will speak. His focus, notice this very carefully. His focus on what he has heard when God spoke. And in one of the most famous verses in the book of Job, verse 5, he contrasts a previous hearing with a new seeing. He says that before all of this took place, his knowledge of God was by the hearing of the ear. Now in the context of the book, that means that Job had the understanding that his three friends did, that God was all-powerful, that God was righteous, and that God always rewarded the righteous and he always punished the wicked. And if you were suffering, it was because you'd been wicked. That's what Job's three friends accuse him of all through the book. And Job's repentance here does not mean that he agrees with them. He is not saying that he did some sin that brought this on. But rather he is saying, as Elihu accused him of, that in the midst of his suffering, he said things about God that were not right. And that he claimed to have understanding of things that only God has understanding of. So he says, he had heard by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes sees you. Now think about that for a minute. That's a strange statement. On the face of it, Job hadn't seen anything. I mean, he had two word portraits of two creatures that God describes, Behemoth and Leviathan, that we said is a way of personifying Satan and death. But he had no uh, mystical vision of God. He had had no... Uh, as Luther said, no beatific vision that had been granted to him. He hadn't seen Jacob's ladder going from earth to or from heaven to earth. Rather, in his imagination, he had seen two terrible monsters, two things that only God could control. And that's why we said that they're not actual creatures. They must be something far beyond that. It's a way of picturing death and Satan. I mean, think of it. Job had not had anything like Isaiah's vision when he saw the Lord high and lifted up in the temple. Or he'd not had the strange vision like Ezekiel had by the river Kibar. He really, Job hadn't seen anything. By whatever way, psychologically or physically, the Lord showed this to Job, he sees God with a clarity he had not seen before. And response to this oral vision, for he heard it with his ears, then then he repents and says, I've said things about God that are not right. What does that tell us? You want to see God? Here it is. This is where you will see God. His word. It comes to you from the word. Job saw God when God spoke to him. God speaks to us in his word. Uh, And he repents. Deep contrition. An extraordinary and surprising response because Job has steadfastly refused to repent all this time while his friends are badgering him and, and urging him. And like I said, it does not mean the friends have been right all along. 
No, Job had not sinned. We still remember chapters 1 and 2. Job was blameless. God says he was blameless. This had not, all of this had not come upon Job because of some specific sin. He repents because in his suffering he had said things about God that were not right. And now he realizes it. Now he realizes that there is no way that he could govern the universe better than God can. That although he doesn't understand why all this came about, it must be right because God allowed it to come about. God, God ordered it. He has been presumptuous. That is the sin that he repents of. And then notice in verses 7 through 9, this is strange too. God rebukes Job's three friends. He rebukes the comforters and he vindicates Job. The technical term for that is justification. God declares Job to be in the right. Now, Job has just repented. We know that he's, he's not been right. But God declares him to be right. That's what God does in justification. He declares the believing sinner to be righteous. Does he make the sinner righteous at that time? No, he declares him to be righteous. And that declaration is vindication. Uh, and Job desperately longs for this. In verse 7, God says that Job has spoken rightly of him, whereas his friends have not. And secondly, in verse 8 once, in verse, uh, verse 7 once, verse 8 twice, God calls Job my servant, exactly as he had done several times in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. It's a title of dignity. It is how God characteristically described Moses and the prophets. It describes a covenant relationship. And then third, in an ironic reversal, as I said, God says to Job's friends, uh, Job will pray for you. We would have expected God to put his arm around those three and say, now look, you boys are all fine, righteous, upstanding servants. Listen, if you pray for Job, I think he'll be all right. No, no, that's not what he does. He says uh, that Job will pray for you and you'll be forgiven. Job, who is seen as the intercessor, the bearer of sacrifices at the start, remember chapter 1, verse 5, where he makes sacrifices for himself and for his children. Now he intercedes and offers sacrifices at the end. And that means it is Job who is vindicated. It is Job who is righteous. It is Job who is justified in right relationship with God. Only people who are in a right relationship with God can pray and expect their prayers to be heard. God says, Job will pray for you and I'll hear his prayer. Uh, the one who had longed for a mediator in chapter 19 becomes a mediator. He offers sacrifices and praise for his friends. And so again, Job foreshadows the one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Indeed, Job has always been a man of prayer. Even in his fiercest denunciations, when he was calling on God to answer him, he was clean to God. He believed that God would answer. He was like Jacob. He would not let go until God blessed him. So in these three ways, God makes it clear that he accepts Job. 
God is saying, this man is mine. He belongs to me, and I will make sure he is mine forever. And this justification, this right relationship with God, is what Job has so deeply longed for since all of this began. It is a mark of God's mercy that he vindicates Job. And if we are in Christ, God will vindicate us. At the end, God will look at us and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. It's harder to think of a greater mark of God's compassion and mercy than that. Whatever path we have to walk to get there, to hear that will be worth it all. And then finally, God restores Job. He blesses Job. But again, notice this. The end comes at the end. He gives him greater prosperity, a restoration of his fortune that foreshadows the resurrection, ascension, and the heavenly rule of Jesus Christ. Job receives sympathy and comfort that echoes the intentions of his three friends. That's what they wanted to do but couldn't do. God gives him renewed celebration. There's a meal. That's the first celebration there's been in the book of Job since chapter 1, verse 4. There is a meal coming. Let us love our God supremely. Let us love each other too. Let us love and pray for sinners till our God makes all things new. Then he'll call us home to heaven at his table. We'll sit down. Christ will gird himself and serve us with sweet manna all around. There is a meal coming. The Bible refers to it as the marriage supper of the Lamb, but it comes at the end. We don't have it now. At the end comes the end. God gives him a new and bigger family, daughters of legendary beauty. He gives him a life that is normal, that is double the normal three score and ten. 140. 70 twice. Uh, Note that God first restored Job to relationship and then blessed him. Job had cried out, now my eyes see you before he is blessed. That's important. Job proves that he is a real believer because he bows down to God in a time of pain. Job did not know what was going to happen. He didn't know God was going to restore anything to him. As far as Job knew, what, where he was at that moment was going to continue until the day he died. He, he's still sitting on an ash heap, scraping sores on his body with a piece of broken pottery. God hadn't said, look, Job, if you repent, boy, I'll get, we'll get right with you. We'll do you well. You know, you'll, you know, you'll be driving a Rolls Royce tomorrow. No, no, no. Job got into a right relationship with God, and then God blessed him. It is not that Job said, okay, God, you've done this for me. You seem to be a pretty good God. I'm going to worship you. He worships God because God is God. And in the end, he is blessed. He has no proof. He has no certainty that the blessing will come. He walks by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. What we believe that will come at the end, we believe because God has said it. 
How do you know that there is a life after this one? Have you been there? No, no one else has either. How do you know that God will give untold blessing to his children? Because God has promised it in his word. God will do what he says. We walk by faith and not by sight. Notice the blessing is not a reward for worship. It's not that God looks at Job and says, well done, dude. You persevered well. Now I'm going to really, I'm going to give you all kinds of things. Not at all. In fact, the doubling of the wealth points to grace. God pours out undeserved blessing on Job. You can't look and see the sufferings of Job as undermining the grace of God. God is no man's debtor. But again, 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 the most important thing is this. The blessing happens at the end. At the end comes the end. James understood that perfectly when he said, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. It is the purpose of the Lord to show mercy and compassion, but that will only be seen when the Lord returns in glory. The end of, the end of Job's suffering anticipates the second coming of Jesus Christ. Like all of the Old Testament figures in the Bible, Job dies at the end of the story. And his death proves that he is not the one that God had promised would come. He is, he is merely one who foreshadows in his sufferings the one to come, Jesus Christ, the one whom Job or any other Old Testament prophet up to John the Baptist was not worthy to un tie his sandals. The end comes at the end. What can we expect in the Christian life? Warfare, suffering, waiting, being mocked, being hated by the world, experiencing pain physically in our bodies, experiencing anguish in our spirit as we watch, watch loved ones suffer and die. Often we do get blessed now. God graciously pours out good things upon us. But whatever blessing we have now is just a tiny foretaste of the blessings to come. In some ways, I think we in the Western world, because of our abundance, don't get this. You don't really get this. I've been in a lot of third world countries where people literally had the clothes on their back and that was it. Maybe not even a house to live in. When you preach to them about the end comes at the end, they get all excited. They get fired up. There's a, there's a better time coming. For us here, ho-hum. We got nice cars, we got nice clothes, we got nice houses. Why, why who would want to go to heaven? We act sometimes, honestly, as if going to heaven is the worst thing that could happen to anybody. Oh, poor old so-and-so. They were only 87. They died and went to glory. Well, what a terrible thing to have happen to them. Really? I always get amused. Someone says, you know, about someone who died, well, they're better off. Bless God, I'm going to tell you something. We'd all be better off. 
Do you not think you'll be better off when you die and go to glory? Do you not think that 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 life is better than this one? Now that should not keep you from living for Christ here. It should motivate you to live for Christ here. Listen, the end comes at the end. I got some good news for you. There is a by and by when the morning comes. All right? There is a day coming when God will wash away every tear from every eye, when there will be no more death, there will be no more sickness, there will be no more pain, there will be no more mourning. But it comes at the end. Now we suffer. Now we have anguish. Now we have sadness. Now we have heartache. But the end comes at the end. We look for a city whose builder and maker is God. It's a city, the Bible says, that has foundations. It's real. It's rock solid. It is there. We look forward to beauty that will make the most beautiful man or woman in the world seem dull. We look forward to a fruitfulness that will make the most abundant family on earth seem barren. We look forward to prosperity, a prosperity that will make the Forbes list of billionaires look like paupers. It's going to happen. It's going to happen, people. But the end comes at the end. It is when Christ returns in glory or when he returns for us in death, then, then there is that blessing. It is promised to us. We look forward to it. We, we, we should get a little homesick for it every now and then, as a matter of fact. You know, where there is no sin and there is no suffering, there is no death. We're looking for a city. We're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. I remember singing that song once down in Guatemala. I was there in 1976 right after a big earthquake killed 35,000 people in 25 seconds. I was in a large church in Guatemala City. There was a number of us Americans and we were singing the song We're Marching to Zion. They were singing in Spanish. All of us were singing in English. I suppose my singing in Spanish would be even worse than my English. But anyway, but we got to the verse that says, let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. But children of the heavenly king will sing his joys abroad. And I looked around that congregation of people who had lost family members in this terrible, they'd lost their homes, they'd lost their possessions, they lost everything. We were probably a thousand of us. There was not anybody in that congregation who refused to sing. They were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. A city that has foundations. A city that is promised to us at the end. At the end comes the end. 
We're going to have a word of prayer and we're going to sing number 524. We're marching to Zion. I encourage you to put your faith in Jesus Christ to serve him every day. Let's stand and have a word of prayer, then we're going to sing. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Now sanctify us by the truth. Your word is truth. Amen.